Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 7th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film in TV news. And in our feature presentation, we're going to play a clip from Ben Pearson's interview with Ray Park, a.k.a. Darth Maul. Uh, this is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Okay, guys, let's jump into the news. Let's start off with a, a bit of sad news. Yesterday, we found out that Burt Reynolds, uh, an actor of television and film, has died at the age of 82. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, unfortunately, Burt Reynolds died of, uh, well, what's the official cause? The official cause, it's basically a heart attack, but it's called um, a cardiopulmonary arrest. And yeah, as you mentioned, he was 82 years old. Uh, Burt Reynolds, of course, known for movies like Deliverance and Boogie Nights and Smokey and the Bandit, Cannonball Run. I mean, he was around uh, for a long time. He was a professional athlete before he became uh, a movie star and was really like um, sort of a like the embodiment of a certain type of masculinity in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he was sort of beloved by pretty much everybody across the board. So uh, it's rare to find a movie star who's, um, whose charisma and and uh, 
just verve, you know, sort of resonated with so many people, um, uh, you know, across all sorts of uh, genders and ages and and demographics of all kinds. So, um, yeah, it, it's uh, sad to see him go, but um, his work will obviously be remembered forever. Yeah, and he, he's been in a ton of stuff. According to IMDb, he has 471 credits to his name, and that includes, you know, television and uh, film and also video games because he was uh, in um, one of the Grand Theft Auto games in Saints Row the Third. Um I feel like, uh, you know, for a actor that has been so prolific, I feel like I have not seen, you know, a tenth of uh, the, the films that he has starred in. I, I feel like my favorite is Boogie Nights. I, I think that's probably a lot of people's favorite of his. I know when I was a kid, I grew up uh, watching Cannonball Run, but I haven't seen that in, you know, over a decade. I'm, I'm actually curious to, to to actually revisit that uh, Ben do, do you have any uh, films or TV that uh, that you remember, Bert? Bye. Yeah, I, I my parents especially really really liked Smokey and the Bandit. I think my mom um, and she was a big fan of Burt Reynolds, and I think uh, I, I grew up watching that movie here and there. So that one, you know, sort of stands out to me. Um, I still have yet to see Deliverance. I know that's a huge one, um, and, and people have been citing that as like one of his best performances. I just like you, Peter. I have a lot of um, of blind spots when it comes to Reynolds' filmography because he was around for so long and he was in so many things. And like a lot of the um, the sort of Southern fried crime movies and stuff he was in like he was in films like hooper and gator which i've been wanting to see for a long time but just have not uh, had a chance to get around to that yet um one thing i did want to mention was he was in this movie called heat in 1986 not the the um, michael mann film heat but this one was um written by William Goldman, who's the guy who wrote like The Princess Bride and uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And it's this really like dirty, sweaty performance from uh, Reynolds in the lead role. And um, I mean, the movie is not great, but I feel like he's pretty good in it. So if you're looking for something that's uh, that's not one of his like classics, I guess that one would be uh, a recommended option. So 1986 is Heat. H.G., how about you? Yeah, I also have a big blind, blind spot when it comes to Burt Reynolds as well. The only film I've seen him in is Boogie Nights, in which he's phenomenal. And he uh, got an Oscar nomination for that film, even though he notoriously apparently hated playing that role and fired his agent after uh, he was cast, <laughs> after he performed in it, which I thought was hilarious because he's so good in it as well. You haven't seen the 1993 film Cop and a Half? You know what? It, I, I just missed that boat. <laughs> what about All Dogs Go to Heaven? Oh yeah, oh, I forgot oh, he was in I that. actually yeah. have seen that. I forgot he was yeah. in that. He no, sang songs that was a beloved and one stuff. of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, but Burt Reynolds, you will be missed. Uh, let's move on to a uh, an interesting bit of a composer who is going to be directing his uh, uh, directing a short film, and that is Michael Giacchino, who uh, you know we know from all the Pixar movies, the J.J. Abrams films. Uh, we love his work. And uh, he is, has directed a short film starring Patton Oswalt that's going to be playing a Fantastic Fest. H.C., what do we know? So Michael Giacchino will be making his directorial debut with a short film called Monster Challenge, which stars Patton Oswalt and Ben Schwartz. And it's making its world premiere at Fantastic Fest this month at the end of the month, um, which runs from September 20th to 27th. It doesn't have an exact date yet, but it'll be sometime in that range. So this short film runs for 13 minutes, and it's Official summary goes, um, uh, famed composer Michael Giacchino catapults a hapless Patton Oswalt as himself into an outrageous series of challenges in, 
in his infectiously silly tributes to the eccentricities of Japanese game shows. So we don't really know much about it. There's a poster that has a big sort of Godzilla-style um, claw print uh, with a Japanese kanji on the on the poster. So it seems really it seems really interesting and offbeat, and uh, it's a long-awaited sort of directorial debut for Giacchino, who actually initially set out to be a filmmaker before he uh, got into music composing and became one of uh, the most renowned composers working today. He apparently majored in film production at the School of Visual Arts, um, but then after a sit at Juilliard, found a career in music scoring. Actually, he fell into publicity. I think he was in publicity at uh, Universal or something. And then that's how he got into uh, composing for video games, which uh, from what I remember, I could be wrong, but he did a Medal of Honor or something like that. And Steven Spielberg caught the eye of Steven Spielberg and some people. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah. Medal of Honor and Call of Duty. Yeah, I am really excited to see this because I think Giacchino is just a very talented person. And if he can, uh, you know, if his storytelling skills are as good as his ability to manipulate my emotions, <laughs> then, then I am down. Uh, ben, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I'm very excited about this. And um, Peter, I think you and I are both going to uh, Giacchino's doing this uh, Lost Live concert um, coming up in uh, might be next weekend, actually, in L.A. Um, I think both of us have seen that performance before, but it's basically it's him like uh, conducting an orchestra of the score that he wrote for Lost, which is like some of my favorite movie or TV music of all time. So maybe somebody there will ask him. Uh, some questions about this and we might be able to you know be there and, and relay some of that info if that happens for sure uh hg are you excited about the short film yeah i'm really excited i also am a huge fan of a lost uh score it's i cried whenever i listened to the end i'm a little bit emotional <laughs> emotional sap when it comes to that movie and i really love all of his scores for the pixar films and uh he's just a hard-working composer i'm astonished how often he can just churn out uh scores for several films in one year and uh, if he can just like have a tenth of his talent that he has shown for um composing with uh his with his um film debut i think it'll be a a great film start to a film career hopefully or filmmaking career i I remember at the last lost concert that i went to ben i don't think you were at the same one as me but he was talking about uh with lost he would they would often record the 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 orchestra for that show days before the episode would go on the air and i just can't imagine being able to work week to week on creating new scores for you know these episodes like i don't know that that guy's a machine <laughs> yeah it was it was wild cuz like he he was talking about how um he the basically the way he would write the music for lost was he would watch like the final cut or very very close to the final cut of the episode and just sort of uh, right to the emotions that he was seeing from the performers and the story and stuff. And like everything would just come to him afterwards. And a lot of times it's done the opposite way. It's like the music is done first and then, um, you know, it's sort of dropped in to score uh, particular moments, but he uh, really like took his cues from the work that Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cues did uh, in sort of shaping the story of that, uh, of that, um, TV show and and really just like the music it, it's astonishing that he did it that way and the music is that good yeah and it should be also mentioned that um 
Michael Giacchino's brother, Anthony Giacchino, is an uh, acclaimed documentary filmmaker. He did uh, the documentary on the Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, uh, Blu-ray, and also that Iron Giant documentary that came out, uh, I think, a year or two ago, which are both worth watching, some of the best uh uh, filmmaking documentaries I've seen in recent years. Um, but let's move on to from movies to theme parks. And uh, apparently there's a new rumor that a Zelda-themed land could be coming to Universal's Islands of Adventure. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so obviously um, Universal sort of changed the game by introducing the Wizarding World of Harry Potter into its parks. And with Disney's Star Wars Galaxy's Edge coming very soon, uh, Universal is going to need something to lure people back over to their park, um, you know, in, in the Orlando area. And that's where uh, they have the Universal Studios Florida Park. They have Universal uh, Islands of Adventure, which is sort of like a more roller coaster heavy um, superhero themed park. There's a, there's like a lot of disparate elements in that park. And there were some rumors that uh, the Super Nintendo properties might be all put into one park in the United States. But it seems now that this new rumor from Theme Park University says that uh, basically they're going to be Universal is going to be diversifying its Nintendo uh, intellectual property and spreading it across multiple parks. So the rumor right now is that a Zelda land is going to be coming to Islands of Adventure and replacing the Lost Continent area of that park and sort of encompassing the whole area from Seuss Landing to the Wizarding World, if anybody is familiar with the geography of, of that particular park. So um, it's still a rumor right now, but uh, we're sort of talking about it in the Slack, and it, it makes a lot of sense because um, that's splitting things up across multiple parks is what Universal has done already with Harry Potter. And that worked out really well for them so far. So a similar move like this makes a lot of sense. Peter, I know you were saying that um, it makes sense also because the idea of introducing an entire Super Nintendo themed land might seem cool, but it at the same time would potentially alienate a lot of people who are not video game lovers, right? Yeah, um, I, I do think, you know, it was originally rumored for that third park that they're supposedly building or going to build or, or they're planning <laughs> in the planning stage right now. Um, and I feel like if that park was half Nintendo, um, you know, as much as video games have perm permeated our culture and, uh, you know, there's so many people that play video games. I could definitely see people that don't play video games going, being like, do I need to go to a park that's half video games that I don't like? So mm -hmm. I, I do think it makes more sense to, like, you know, have uh, Super Mario Land over in this third park, having Zelda over in Islands of Adventure and maybe, uh, you know, something over in Universal Studios proper. Uh, ben, HD, have you guys ever been to Islands of Adventure? I have, yeah. I actually was there before it opened. I I was I went with a like a group, and I was like one of the first people to ever be in that park. Oh, and wow. I rode all the rides like before it opened to the public, and uh, actually got stuck on like a Dudley Do Right Ripsaw Falls ride, <laughs> and, and like I, had to, I was basically stuck on the ride for like an hour and a half, um, as you know the music was just jangling around <laughs> and driving me insane. But we got. Uh, like a cut to the front of the line pass because of it. And we ended up being able to ride the the Hulk roller coaster that's over there. Um, yeah, I, I have a very fond memories of that park and like the dueling dragons ride, which has now uh, been, I, I guess, converted into like a Harry Potter. Uh, roller yeah, they're converting it right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that one. I, I was a big fan of uh, riding that uh, that ride. And yeah, I definitely enjoyed um, 
Islands of Adventure because, like I said, it's, it's it was more like attraction heavy instead of like atmosphere heavy. But uh, HT, have you ever been? I've only been to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, which I think yeah is like kind it's of part of, that, part right? of Islands yeah. of Adventure. <laughs> but I stuck base like uh, <laughs> essentially just to that area and like left immediately after I finished. <laughs> so I haven't been to any of the other um, parts of Universal Studios. Spoken like a true Harry Potter fan. <laughs> I have to, I have to be, um, be loyal to my tattoo. <laughs> Wait, what is your tattoo? Oh, I have a, a Deathly Hallows tattoo on my wrist of the, the uh, symbol. I do, I do mm-hmm. not know how I didn't know that. Um, well, the the land that they're supposedly the rumor is they're building the Zelda uh, themed land on is a this land called Lost Continent, which. Uh, I think for most people's money has been like the least favorite of the lands, but it has like this great Poseidon's Fury indoor special effects kind of walkthrough show thing, which uh, mm-hmm. actually maybe is the eighth Voyage of Sinbad. It's one of that those one, two. That one I think is the stage show and, oh, uh, yeah, and that's yeah. getting shut down. But I think Poseidon's Fury is like, it looks really cool from the outside, but on the inside, it's not quite as great. So yeah, I, I think you're right. Like yeah. across the board, people are probably talking about how this one, you know, this area, this lost continent area makes the most sense. If something is going to be taken out and sort of revamped, that's the place to do it. Now, if you guys are going to enter the world of Zelda, like what, what kind of ride do you want to be on? <laughs> I want to ride on a horse and uh, eat carrots. That's, that's the only part. That's the only parts of Zelda that I really remember playing. Uh, riding on a it, horse. It, it's going to be the yeah. lamest um, sto- like a food place in any theme park where they're just going to serve carrots. <laughs> yes, or fish because I remember fishing as well. That was a really fun part. Basically, my cousin had a Legends of Zelda game and he would only allow me to play the boring parts. <laughs> That's one of the saddest things. It's terrible. Uh, wait, so, so Ben, what, what would you like to see from a Zelda attraction? So for me, I've actually never played any Zelda games. I'm getting ready. My wife That's has shocking. a Nintendo Switch, and we're getting ready to buy um, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild uh, pretty soon. So I'm looking forward to diving into that as like my first true Zelda experience. I've, I've had some interaction with that character in like the Super Smash Brothers games, but that doesn't really count. So um, I think uh, th- I'll be better equipped to answer this question in a few months once we actually get a chance to play that game. Yeah, I, I just don't know how you capture Zelda in a ride maybe you're going into one of the dungeons i don't know um we'll we'll, we'll probably find out pretty soon uh, whenever they decide to announce this thing but let's move on to our next story and that is avengers 4 apparently is still a work in progress even though they have uh completed principal photography and they're heading they're doing reshoots right now uh apparently things are still in flux ht what do we know so initial production for Avengers 4 ran from August 2017 to January 2018 in Georgia. And we thought that would be that for the like the beginning, middle, and end of the film. And reshoots, as they usually constitute, would fill in the gaps and add some additional photography. But Mark Ruffalo revealed that it's they actually haven't shot through the entire film yet. Uh, with the Avengers 4 uh, reshoots, which will be taking place sometime this month and actually are, I think, starting to take place uh, currently, they are going to be completing the film. 
And um, Ruffalo said that this is sort of a, a process that he called, that he kind of termed as a, a living organism of a film uh, in which um, they will not work on just individual scenes, but shoot <laughs> through, a, through the entire movie and uh, take feedback as well. So what he said was, quote, um, some of it is happening while we're there. It's pretty amazing. And we'll shoot some stuff and a few days later come back and reshoot it because we want to take it in another direction. It's a very living organism. Even as we approach it being a locked picture, we're still working on it, end quote. So this could also possibly be due to the fact that Marvel keeps such a tight lid on these films that some cast members don't get the entire script. And I think especially with Mark Ruffalo or cast member like Tom Holland, who are very spoiler prone, <laughs> it's possible that Mark Ruffalo just simply doesn't know what's going on because he hasn't received the entire script. But if Yeah, but um... they wouldn't waste his time filming a scene one way and then filming another. Well, I guess they That's could be true. filming in two different ways. So he doesn't know which way the story actually goes. Mm-hmm. That's so they're true. spending all this money, millions of dollars, <laughs> just, just so that he Mark won't Ruffalo. spoil the movie. <laughs> Yeah, but um, it's a very interesting uh, sort of approach to filmmaking, which we've never really seen before, and kind of takes into account both um, studio feedback as well as possibly fan feedback as well. So do you think with this, they're they're writing out Drax from the future of the Guardians of the Galaxy films? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, after Dave Bautista has been very vocal in his displeasure with Disney over James Gunn's firing, um Ben, what do you think this could possibly mean for Avengers 4? Yeah, I was wondering if they might um, if they might be. I mean, you're joking about Drax, but I'm wondering if they might actually be crafting a new ending for the Guardians in order to sort of set them off in a different way than they would have if the James Gunn situation did not unfold the way it did. Um, you know, we were sort of speculating like the stuff with Captain Marvel looks pretty cool that we've seen so far. So she is also a, a space centric superhero. And maybe, you know, we knew that um, that the Guardians of the Galaxy movies were supposed to sort of uh, provide a jumping off point off into the, the cosmic side of the MCU uh, in the in the wake of Avengers 4. And maybe they'll be able to use Captain Marvel to sort of fill that uh, gap that role instead um I, I don't know that there's <laughs> there's still a lot of questions about this yeah it, it's and we we really know nothing about this movie other than seeing set photos that apparently show us revisiting the battle of new york and other moments from throughout the marvel film so we assume time travel is involved but that's that's really the extent of what we know of this movie at this point right mm-hmm. like yeah we, we don't even realistically know who the villain is i mean i guess thanos is the villain but wouldn't he need more minions of some kind to keep things interesting i don't know yeah, maybe time itself is the villain. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's move on to Alamo Drafthouse has announced that they are going to launch theaters in Los Angeles and Manhattan in 2019. Uh, as someone who has been living in L.A. for the last, like, what, seven years, I, th- I think this announcement has come two times before this. Like, yeah, at least two times before this. Yeah. yeah, I've been waiting for this Alamo Drafthouse Theater in L.A. for a long time. So, Ben, is it actually happening this time? <laughs> I think it's actually happening right now because they said that uh, construction is actually underway on the location. So I think in, in previous instances, when in like 2015 and 2018, they were promising that it was going to be coming soon. Uh, it was still like I guess they were still waiting on some permits or whatever the you know regulations they had to uh, over 
you know, get approved by the city and stuff like that. But now apparently construction is actually officially underway right now on its location in downtown Los Angeles. So this targeted release date of 2019 might finally stick. Um, we also know that they are opening a location in Manhattan for the first time. So that is also coming in uh, 2019. I think they said that, um, the LA location should be in like the second quarter of 2019 and maybe the, the Manhattan location should be in the back half of the year. Um, so one of the cool things about this is that both locations are going to have new branches of video vortex, which is a bar slash rental area that we actually talked about when they opened it in Raleigh, North Carolina, not too long ago. Um, video vortex is it, it's like they have all sorts of, you know, I think like 40 different uh, craft beers or something like that and and it's like a full bar but they also like the majority no, all, all of it local is craft beers too oh yeah that's yeah. cool I, I didn't realize that um but yeah the the majority of the of the idea is that um they offer free rentals of like blu-rays and dvds and even vhs tapes and they rent you a vcr if you don't have one and like i said all that is free so you just like walk in and have an account with them i guess and you can just you know take all this stuff home and check it out and and bring it back and you know we we're talking on a recent episode of the podcast about a lot of the movies that are out there that are not available on you know streaming or rental platforms or anything like that and this seems to be like a direct answer to uh, a lot of those uh, problems that people have with availability like uh, you know being able to go into a place like this and check out um, a movie that is only available on VHS is like a it's an invaluable resource for people who love film and who have, you know, are just frustrated with the fact that a lot of studios have not digitized um, the stuff yet. So, uh, yeah, both of those, uh, the L.A. and Manhattan locations will both have um the video vortex in there and uh they're gonna have like board game nights and um trivia nights and stuff that are hosted by birth movies death which is the movie blog that is um owned by the alamo draft house and they're really trying to make it sound like a, a true destination for movie lovers in both la and new york so um yeah i am pretty sure we're going to be covering a lot of stuff from there because yeah. it sounds like they're going to have like a lot of cool events and stuff so uh yeah stay tuned for more I'm still baffled by this video store, which they're they're renting everything for free. If you if you have an account, like how are they going to make money? They just I guess assume that people are going to come there and and drink and go see movies. I think so. Yeah, I think the um and they're going to sell like apparel from Mondo and maybe posters and merchandise and stuff like that too. So maybe all of that is a way to just sort of um fund this grand experiment of uh, of giving people access to all this old stuff that they couldn't get otherwise. Now, I know people in New York are already enjoying an Elmo Draft House in Brooklyn. This is going to be the first one, I think, in Manhattan. Um, but uh, Los Angeles doesn't have an option like that at all. And they're building this in downtown, which uh, if you don't live in Los Angeles or have never visited Los Angeles, you probably don't know this. But downtown Los Angeles is kind of like uh, the deserted wasteland. <laughs> it's, it's where It's where people go to work. But everything's happening kind of elsewhere in the city. And it, I guess that's probably unfair because downtown is kind of uh, becoming a more hip place to, for things yeah, to happen. They, they've been doing a lot of work on it over the yeah. past decade or so to try to get it, um, you know, improve its reputation and, and have it be sort of a more happening place. <laughs> but generally, things close at 7 p.m. downtown. And uh, us people that live in Los Angeles don't really venture out there too often. So, Ben... Uh, is it, with an Alamo Draft House opening downtown, will will that get you to go down there? 
that's the thing is like it depends on i think i would go for special events i wouldn't make it like my quote-unquote home theater just because there are you know i can walk to the arc light which is a really great theater from my apartment in like 15 minutes or something so it's i i would much prefer the ease and accessibility of doing something like that than um you know than having to drive all the way to downtown la or worry about parking or anything although i guess you could take a the subway or something there um because it's going to be right next to a subway stop i think so that might be uh, the way that i go about you know getting there um for something like a a big event you know they're going to have like classic films and they have like 4k projectors but they're also going to have 35 millimeter projectors there so they're going to do a lot of um you know actually like uh project things in celluloid which is becoming more and more rare these days so um maybe for like a special anniversary screening or um some event or something like that i I would i'm guessing i'll go like a handful of times a year but i won't be going like every week yeah i think that's gonna be the case with me too but if they start doing like these weekly events like the alamo draft house in austin have like these really fun you know weird wednesday and all these other like like cool events that you get exposed to films that like are not available uh anywhere i don't know maybe i will find myself down there more than i think but yeah i'm I'm thinking it's probably gonna be a handful of times a year but I, i hope they prove me wrong uh let's move on to our last and final uh news story today and that is the new michael moore film has premiered at the toronto international film festival uh ht uh do people like it tell us about it uh, people are actually somewhat mixed on this film. Some are calling it Moore's most powerful movie yet, uh, but others are saying it's a little bit of a mess. But then again, so is our world. So Michael Moore's new film. By the Moore's way, who would have thought that people would have been mixed on a Michael Moore film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're basically made to be divisive, and this one might pro- probably be the one of his most divisive yet. So Fahrenheit 11.9, which is sort of a play off of his uh, – previous film, Fahrenheit 9-11, about the Iraq War, uh, targets President Donald Trump uh, and uh, sort of the the reason that we're here today. But it's actually not quite about Donald Trump. A lot of reviews are saying that's kind of where it falls flat with people because it's a very ambitious and sprawling documentary that uh, not only talks about Trump and his rise, but also Flint, Michigan, uh, the um, school shootings and everything that kind of is a, like a symptom of this uh, unrest and political climate going on right now. And it also kind of points to Donald Trump as a symptom himself, though he's also um, compared frequently to Adolf Hitler in the film. So um, Salon is the one that calls Fahrenheit 11.9 Moore's most powerful movie yet, and that it draws from his legacy of documentaries that are provocative, insightful, revelatory, and witty. Um, But while IndieWire calls it quote, a messy movie from messy times, but that is a rousing call to arms. Um, Variety also kind of dings the film for having a nose-thumbing start that soon turns into a powerful warning about fascism. And that's uh, the general gist of things. It kind of begins slowly and a little bit scattershot, but then it has a very powerful and very rousing ending. One of the surprising things about this that I was reading in some of these reviews is, you know, Moore is often criticized as, you know, 
he's offering a slanted view from a liberal point of view and there's an agenda there and blah 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 and every documentary has some kind of you know view of the filmmaker but uh the uh this film i guess takes on the democratic party in in some way and also obama uh he actually, I guess, says in the movie that the Democratic, the old guard of the Democratic Party is a greater roadblock to social progress than Trump is, which is kind of crazy uh, mm-hmm. from someone yeah. of Michael Moore, where I, I feel like most people would not expect him to go in that direction. So, yeah, I think it is probably more divisive <laughs> than your typical uh, Michael Moore film. Are, are you guys interested in seeing it? H.E., I know you live uh, close to the Capitol. So you you are like inundated by all this stuff yeah. all the time. Uh, does that make you? Yeah, are you more sick of it and not wanting to engage? Yeah, I already dislike seeing Trump on the news for like more than thirty seconds, and seeing a whole movie that partially targets him doesn't sound quite entertaining to me. It sounds it does sound important, and Michael Moore uh, does make important films, but I don't know if I would actively seek it out. Ben, how about you? I'm right there with you, HC. I, I feel like my Twitter feed is good enough in terms of like <laughs> documenting the uh, the insanity of the lives that we lead today. So, yeah, I'm really curious. I I, I love his film Bowling for Columbine. I think uh, his film Sicko, while it's not an amazing film, I think really helped to change uh, healthcare, and then it got reversed. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't really love his more, uh, you know let's go against the the current establishment documentaries those tend to be less interesting to me but i i'm curious to see what what he says here and uh i'll check it out when it comes out so uh at least has me in the theater um <laughs> but let's move on to our feature presentation uh and that is uh ben yesterday you got to go to walt disney studios and spar in a lightsaber battle with Darth Maul himself. <laughs> I did, yeah. It's a really, it's a weird job we have, guys. Um, yeah, I, I I'm just... so jealous, so jealous. <laughs> if, if if I wasn't in, in living in fear of the fact that there could be, uh, what, what, what was that Star Wars kid like memes made out of me battling with with uh ray park i would have been there but we came to me and jacob hall the managing editor slash um came to the conclusion that ben would be the person on staff that would most look like he would not be ridiculed in a lightsaber bath so. i don't think anyone ridicule you peter <laughs> I don't know. All those people who are uh, slagging The Last Jedi in your mentions might have a field day with that. Oh, so I think you, you may have made the right call there. But, yeah. Um, yeah, nobody nobody really cares about my mentions. So I think, I, I think I'll probably be fine. But yeah, it was really cool. I got to talk to I got to meet Chewbacca, first of all. Um, so that was uh, something. I mean, it wasn't Junis or uh, Jonas Suatomo, the guy who actually plays him in the movie. I think it was just like an intern in a Chewbacca costume. Uh, but it was still kind of interesting. And then, yeah, I got to talk to Ray Park yesterday. Um, I put it all in a, a video and you can read that or actually check out the video. And then um, I, I added a bunch of details and stuff to it. So you can check that out on Slash Film. We'll link to it in the show notes. But um, yeah, I got to ask him about uh, the secrecy that uh, of shooting the cameo um, part that he had in Solo a Star Wars Story. And uh, Peter, I think we have a clip of uh, his audio from that, right? Yes, let's play that right now. What can you tell me about shooting your scene? What was that like? Was that done remotely? Did they fly you to the the set where all the other actors were? How was, how was so that? So it was secret. So Ron and I and John 
They brought me into Pinewood Studios. I was covered up. I saw some stunt buddies of mine, but I couldn't, see, I couldn't say hi. We're in this darts out Mercedes. Ron goes, well, we look, it's like we're doing some dodgy gangster deal. <laughs> and I said to Ron, Ron, this is, this is not my idea. But I was so nervous and so excited. I just got off the plane. He was telling me everything about what, what was happening with Maul. Went back to my hotel and just couldn't believe it. And so um, for, for a little while, I had to keep myself secret. You know, I couldn't go and say, hey, buddy, what's up? I'm back. I'm right. back in London. <laughs> Shaving the head. So um, I kind of kept myself uh, for a few months just out of the loop mm-hmm. from things. So there you have it. You can listen or, I guess, watch the rest of the interview and watch Ben learn how to fight with the lightsaber from Darth Maul himself in this video on SlashFilm.com. Uh, it's linked in the show notes. This brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. HD, where can we find more of your work online? You can find me every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. Ben, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at SlashFilm.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And you can find me on all social media at SlashFilm. Please don't at reply me on my Star Wars tweets. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can find more of all the stories we talked about today uh, linked in the show notes and on SlashFilm.com. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday. Uh, you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps alongside SlashFilm.com. Uh, please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please go rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. You know, one of the most surprising things, guys, is uh, Michael Moore. Uh, I don't think this is in the movie, but I saw I was reading this interview with him and he Michael Moore. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but like when Hillary was like ahead in the polls, he was the one guy going around being like Trump's going to win. Trump's going to mm-hmm. win. He was yeah. the one guy mm-hmm. being like the end is near. And, yeah, he wrote an article saying like five reasons why Trump would win, and he got a lot of flack for it. Yeah, and um, I don't want to say that Michael Moore is a prophet in any way, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but he did get that one right. And in in this article, he was uh, in, in recently this interview, he said that um, he predicted that Trump is going to get a second term, oh, and he gosh. said he said it's going to happen unless unless we run a, a beloved figure like Tom Hanks, Oprah. Or Michelle Obama. Oh my God! What do you guys think? I I'm just gonna hope that he's wrong about that and not pay much attention to it, other than just doing whatever I can do to make sure that it doesn't happen. But uh, yeah, I, I Peter, my life is consumed with too much of this. Sorry, right, why would you put that in my head? No. Uh... I don't know. You don't want Tom Hanks as the president. Like, I, I want Tom Hanks as the president. No, I, don't I just want okay. Tom Hanks. I don't want my my Hollywood heroes to be presidents because I don't want to learn what's bad about them. Like yeah, I like I like Dwayne Johnson as he is. I don't want him to run for president because I'm going to learn that he's like believes in all these terrible conservative nonsense or something. Just let them be. But I like them as now. Which like so, yeah, give me, give so me let's, let's with like government experience who <laughs> understands policy. Like I, I don't yeah. need a flashy person who who uh, has been in a bunch of movies. Just give me somebody who knows what they're doing.